Welcome to the Carrots and Cake Podcast. I'm your host, Tina Hopper, an FDN practitioner, author, mom, and IBD advocate. Tune in each week for real-life advice and strategies for becoming your happiest and healthiest self, all while thriving in the gray area. Trust me when I say, you can have your carrots and cake too. Welcome to the next episode of the Carrots and Cake Podcast. Today, I have a special guest. I have Megan Lyons here. She is a Harvard graduate, um, MBA, and a former management consultant who left a business left the business world to follow her passion for wellness by opening the Lion's Share Wellness in 2014. Since then, she's earned a master's degree in holistic nutrition and has become a double board certified in holistic nutrition and clinical nutrition. And she has amassed over 10,000 hours of international one-on-one nutrition consulting with clients. (laughs) Like struggling over my words today. Anyways, Megan, very happy that you are here and excited to chat with you today. I am so excited. Thank you for having me, Tina. Yeah, sure thing. And I love diving right in with these interviews and just hearing your story. And I love your story because you went to Harvard, you graduated cum laude in economics, you went to business school, and then you took this turn where you're into holistic nutrition now and board certified, all of these credentials. So I would just love to hear your story, how you started here and how you got to where you are now. Yes, absolutely. Well, I that I think have gotten me here. One is I always like to push myself. I'm not that competitive with other people, but I always like to push myself and measure things and achieve and grow and all of this stuff. And the second is that I'm pretty happy no matter what situation I'm in. And so if you put those two together, the beginning phases of my life and my career was just kind of like following whatever path I thought was the one that I should want. And I looked I'm role model. And that sounds great. And I, I thought, what's the best school I could go to? And I applied to Harvard on a whim and luck there. And then Harvard didn't have a business major. So I thought, what's the closest possible? I'll do economics. And then what career does everyone want? Management consulting. And what do people do? They get an MBA. So I was following all these paths and I was genuinely happy. I don't have a crisis. Uh, you know, I I was miserable in my life or anything like that. I appreciated all the opportunities that I had. I was learning so much, but I was realizing that if you're happy on the surface and you're grinding and grinding and grinding incessantly, then something inside you is slowly dying, even if you're that happy-go-lucky person on the surface. And so to the outside, I looked fine. And I would tell everyone I'm fine. And I believed I was fine. But on the inside, I was absolutely crumbling. And that manifested for me in terms of a hormonal crash. We talk a lot about cortisol and yes, I had all the cortisol dysregulation issues, but also like my sex hormones. I I went as, as I was 26 years old, I went and got my hormones tested and the doctor did 
lower hormones than a postmenopausal woman. And I was like, how is this possible? And she said, well, it must just be a fluke. You must have to be on medication for the rest of your life. And something inside me was like, that's not the answer. It can't be. I know I'm doing this to myself. I'm traveling 48 weeks a year. I'm working 80 hours a week. And it's not really my passion, even though it's fine. So that started me on my own personal journey of learning about health. And I think for many of us, once we see the light in this world, it's really hard to escape it. And we know how powerful of an impact it has. And I just had to share that with other people. So like you said, that was 2014 when I finally made the switch of careers and I planned to just do it for six months and see what would happen. And I haven't looked back since. Mm-hmm. And I feel like your story is all too common for many of us who get into yeah. this functional health space or even functional nutrition. And yeah, I feel yes. like there's always some sort of story of burnout mm-hmm. <laughs> and then our health gets imbalanced and we yes. do the traditional medical, you know, visit our doctors and whatnot. And yeah, sometimes we don't yep. get the answers we get. So as you said, you know, see the light and we start doing things differently. And then it just becomes so obvious that we need to help other women through this process. So I love that you shared that. Yes. Story. And I love just kind of like the progression of, you know, Harvard economics, business school to, you know, nutrition and health and all that good stuff. So love that so much. Um, so something that I saw on your Instagram feed, um, you had posted that, of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And most of the clients who come to us, you know, 90% of them are women who want to lose weight or change their body composition, or they've gained weight out of nowhere. I mean, I feel like this goes hand in hand, but how, how do you get yourself into that 12% where you are metabolically healthy? And I guess maybe backing up a little bit, like, how did we get here? Yeah. Great question. I wish I had like a pithy one sentence answer. Um, I, I would change the world's problems and I don't, unfortunately. But let's first define what that means, that metabolic unhealth, that 88% that's in that category. You know this, Tina, but for anyone in the audience who doesn't, metabolic syndrome is a confluence of of factors like increased waist circumference, high triglycerides, high fasting blood sugar, low HDL, all these kind of things that we've heard of, like, oh, everyone's heard of cholesterol, everyone's heard of blood pressure, whatever. But if we isolate all of those factors and we say what percentage of Americans have one of those things that's out of whack, that's where the 88% comes. And when then we say, oh, that's metabolically unhealthy, people think, oh no, I just care about my metabolism, like how I fit into my pants. I don't really care about my blood pressure. And they don't realize that all of this stuff is so connected. I like to think of all these little things as flashing indicators. If you have high blood pressure, that's a flashing indicator. Something's off in your body. If you have high triglycerides, that's a flashing indicator. Something's off in your body. And this all does come back to metabolism, which by definition means the process of turning food into energy, basically, that it's it's much more complex of a process than just how we fit into our genes or our Lululemons or whatever. And so when people 
think about this to answer your question of how we got here. I think the answer is we live a very stressed out lifestyle. There's just no getting around it in 2023 or 2024, whenever this is going to come out. Life is stressful. We can make ourselves more stress resilient, which we can talk about, but it's stressful. We are eating. And and I put myself in this category too, because I don't grow all my food in my backyard. I don't have cows and chickens in my backyard and all this stuff. So we are all eating processed food. We can do better or um, not as well on one day, but we are getting exposed to so many chemicals through our food that we didn't before. We are, our circadian rhythms are off because of blue light and not prioritizing sleep where our cortisol is so high. Like our lifestyle is what's getting us here. And does this actually affect what people care about, which is fitting into their pants? Absolutely, all these factors do. Yes, yes. And I mean, this is a conversation I have with a lot of our clients. You know, they come come to carrots and cake, like I was saying, a lot of them want to lose weight. And I do think a lot of times I just think if I eat less, exercise more, the weight's going to come off. But when we really dig into it, we offer functional testing to our clients. But when we really look at what's going on in their bodies, a lot of times, There are blood sugar issues, there are thyroid issues, gut issues, um, which I know you're familiar with, you know, these are the same things that you talk about with your clients, but you know, for somebody who is struggling with their weight and maybe their health too, as far as symptoms go, um, what would you have them do first, as far as first steps? I mean, is it, is it jumping to blood work or functional testing or, you know, is it more basic, you know, just changing food quality and, you know, where would you go first? I just feel like a lot of women just feel so overwhelmed by all the info out there. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think about this a lot in terms of how I run my practice. So I I don't actually think there's a right answer, but what I do personally is I assess the person individually and often times I would say, you know, no one's coming to me who hasn't tried something before. And I think probably same with your clients. So it's not the really low hanging fruit, but 60% of the time, do the basics work to move the needle? Absolutely. Yes. And then it's those 40% of people who they genuinely are eating really well. They know how to balance their macros and they they are moving appropriately, not too much, not too little, and they are sleeping and they are doing all these things. Then I feel like functional testing is extremely helpful. And for that, it depends on the person. If I'm going to do a stool test or I'm going to do blood work or something like that. But to go back to the majority who the basics do work for, some people, they come to me and they're like, yeah, I'm I'm eating healthily. And then I'll start with something as simple as, hey, take this post-it note and just put a tally for every serving of protein and put a star for every serving of vegetables that you're getting this week. And then come back and let's see what happens. And they come back and they're like, oh, I had like five tallies and, and four stars all week. And they just don't realize because they're not going to McDonald's. They're not going to whatever it is every day. They're not having 18 donuts for breakfast. So they think they're eating healthily, but they're not actually fueling their bodies with the things that we need to improve our metabolism and our overall health, which to really, really simplify it is like water, protein, fiber, stress management, and sleep. Those things are a sure bet for everyone. Yes, I agree 100%. And that's what we talk to our clients about 
all the time, um, as far as just like getting yes. back to basics and even just what you were saying, like the awareness around food. And I do a very similar exercise when we start our clients, we actually have them write down everything that they eat, um, just to be more aware, like, are they getting the protein? Are they getting the veggies? Um, but beyond the basics, so I think we definitely have a lot of women that we work with that come to us that are doing so many of the right things. They are eating healthy, they're exercising, they're getting to bed at a normal hour, they're getting sunlight and movement and all that. But then they have these questions. They're wondering, you know, is it my hormones? Is it my thyroid? And I feel like the thyroid stuff is popping up more and more, especially for these ladies like in their late 30s, into their 40s. Um, but Yes. Why? I'm assuming you probably see this too, you know, very, very common, but why are these thyroid conditions on the rise with women? Yeah, I do think a very small percentage of it is that we're starting to get smarter about diagnosing. So no longer are we just running TSH, but we're actually looking at what's going on in the thyroid, hopefully running some thyroid antibodies, things like that. So we know about how to see what's actually happening. Whereas 40 years ago, someone with the same condition might have just gotten a TSH tested and say, oh, your thyroid's fine, even though they did have thyroid dysfunction, we just didn't know. So part of it is better diagnostics, but I also think it goes back to the lifestyle. So the thyroid, all the hormones in your body operate like a symphony. And if one hormone is off, like for example, cortisol, a stress hormone or insulin, which is a blood sugar regulator. If that's off, then thyroid is going to try to make up the difference. For example, if you had an orchestra and the violinist just starts going crazy, crazy, then the cellist is going to be like, oh, violinist is going rogue. I'm going to try to match the violinist or I'm going to try to play louder to mask over or whatever. Your hormones are, our hormones are trying to the same thing. So thyroid, in my opinion, is going a little wonky because a lot of our other hormones are going a little wonky too. And because thyroid controls so many of our functions like temperature control, metabolism, which is where we started, a lot of uh, emotional processes and even digestive processes that people don't realize the thyroid has anything to do with, it's one of those very sensitive ones that can uh, get impacted by this other stuff. And then finally, last thing I'll say is I do think a lot of our food exposures, our medications, and I'm not someone who never takes medication, right? I'm very grateful for Western medicine. I think we can all coexist really, really well. But because a lot of us have had overabundance of antibiotics and things like that, all of that impacts our immune system. And a lot of what we're seeing with thyroid conditions is this autoimmunity, which is a hyper response of our immune system. So that was a long answer. Let me zip it and see what you think. (laughs) No, that was perfect. That was perfect. And I just liked how you said all these things are connected. And we see a lot of very, very similar patterns as far as you know, blood sugar, insulin resistance, estrogen dominance, all these things kind of like circling around the thyroid. And yeah, the thyroid is constantly paying attention to what is happening in the body. And, you know, so if a woman is listening to this right now and she's wondering like, is it my thyroid? Is this why I can't lose weight? Is this why I have low energy and my hair is falling out? Um, What would you tell her as far as maybe some symptoms that might give her clues or, you know, how to request that testing. Like you were saying, like so many doctors just do TSH and they're like, you're fine. (laughs) And like, you're not fine. So um, any advice there? 
That was two questions, but. Absolutely. Yes. I'll tackle them both. Okay. Awesome. The unfortunate thing I think about the symptoms is that almost everyone has had one of these symptoms, even people without thyroid conditions. Um, But, you know, if we we have many of these symptoms, we can start saying, "Mm, something feels a little off here. So when we think of hypothyroid, low thyroid, which is definitely more prevalent than hyperthyroid, everything is slow. Constipation, so your digestion is slow. Uh, Skin rejuvenation is slow, so your skin feels dry and brittle. Hair growth is slow, so you're losing hair, you're having hair thinning. Temperature control is off. Your metabolism is slow, so you might have weight gain. Just think slow, slow, slow for hypothyroid. And uh, irritability, I mean, again, everyone's been irritable, definitely myself included, probably like eight times today, but we we might feel a little more irritable. We might have slow periods as well or menstrual irregularities. We might have um, uh, bloating. All of these kinds of things would be symptoms. So if people are listening and they think, yeah, I don't just have irritability every once in a while, but all of those things or some of those things seem to be relevant for me, I would definitely request at least the TSH, which is for people who don't know, TSH is actually not a thyroid hormone. It's a pituitary hormone. Your pituitary gland is in your brain and that spits out to say, hey, we need more thyroid in here. So I would do that. But then I would also do T3 and T4. These are the hormones you're Thyroid produces both, but more T4, and then your body converts it into T3. So definitely get both of those tested because we can then see if it's an issue of your thyroid not producing enough, which is T4, or if it's an issue of conversion, which is usually gut or liver issues, that would be fine T4, but low T3. And then also go ahead and check the free T4 and T3 and the thyroid antibodies, which are anti-TG and anti-TPO antibodies. These are the ones that are elevated in Hashimoto's. So just for someone taking notes, it's TSH, T3, T4, free T3 and free T4, and then anti-TPO and anti-TG antibodies. And I'm realizing one that I forgot is reverse T3 as well, which is kind of like I think of it like a U-turn. Your body's supposed to turn it into T3, but oops, it reverses and it goes to reverse T3 instead. And this is a sign that something's off like stress or mold exposure or an infection or underfueling or something like that. So I would throw that one in. Is that similar to the approach that you take? Yes, very much. And I'm constantly telling women to, uh, you know, put on their big girl panties, go into their doctor and request the stuff, especially if they have thyroid issues because TSH is just not giving you the full picture as far as what's going on. And I do think having more data just gives you more clues as far as what you need to work on and, you know, really trying to like figure out this problem or figure out a solution. And I actually have a little freebie that (laughs) I'll leave a link in the show notes, but it essentially like gives you what to ask your doctor for, you know, with those specific markers, you know, different ranges, like the conventional ranges versus the functional ranges, which I'm sure you can agree on this. You know, the conventional ranges are very, very wide. The functional ranges are a lot more narrow and they might be a lot more optimal as far as your health goes. And unfortunately, I do think a lot of times your average doctor is going to say, oh, everything looks good. You're good to go. But you're also 
you know, dragging your butt around yes. every day. You have dry skin and hair and you're cold all the time. And you're like, something is not right here. So I'm definitely always encouraging women to really push for what they need and not just to leave a doctor's office feeling, you know, more hopeless <laughs> than, you know, they were when they arrived. So um, big fan for advocating. Absolutely. Um, I love, yes, this yes. I love that you have that freebie. That's so amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as far as the thyroid stuff goes, so, you know, I'm I'm with you. I'm not opposed to medications or conventional medicine, Western medicine anyways. Like we can absolutely coexist, you know, in this space because you need meds, you need surgery, you need doctors for sure. But as far as like a functional or more natural approach for the thyroid, you know, what are some things that women can do to support their thyroid and maybe even help, like if they're on medication, like help the medications even work better? Yes, absolutely. So um, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but I'm just going to say it like it is. For most thyroid conditions, I am going to help someone drastically reduce or take out gluten fully for at least a short period of time. I wrote time. that down to ask. Yeah, I know. It- uh, I love to be the person, the carrots and cake person. I love to be the person who's like, yes, you can, you know, do both. And I believe that in like almost every aspect of health. But when someone has Hashimoto's and their body's actively attacking their thyroid or in the beginning stages of really uh, thyroid disarray, I just find it's such a helpful intervention to take gluten out for at least a couple of months um, to to let the body cool down. So that's one. And and as you well know, and and we both share, there are plenty of other options. It's really not that challenging these days, not nearly as challenging as it was decades ago. Uh, But then also really focusing on nourishing your body, going back to what people forget. They think about taking out stuff. They don't focus on including all the great stuff. Our body needs tons of micronutrients and antioxidants in order to cool down that inflammation response and to support the, the appropriate functioning of your thyroid. So we think of nutrients like selenium and zinc, and those are really important, but even antioxidants like vitamin A and vitamin C and vitamin E, all of this stuff is so essential for thyroid function. And I think most people can get that by just focusing on a variety of vegetables, fruits, whole natural food, uh, including that in their day. And then some people require additional supplementation as well. Protein, even though I said it before, that's just going to be so important. When we don't have enough protein, it's not just about body composition. That's important too. But also our body feels like, oh, I don't have what I need to do all the functions. Protein's important for like hundred thousands of functions in our body. And if your body feels like it doesn't have what it needs to do that, it panics a little and it starts slashing some of the ones that are not essential, which in my case, decades ago was like my hormones, my thyroid, all of that kind of stuff, which is part of the reason for this under-functioning. So just be sure you're getting enough nourishment for your thyroid. Um, all the basics, sleep, stress management, water, all of that kind of stuff is really uh, important as you're healing your thyroid. And then depending on the person and their specific situation, I might get into other more detailed supplements. But honestly, I think if we read like 
Isabella Wentz is great or um, uh, who is it? Alan Christensen, any of these thyroid books, a lot of the basic principles are like nourishing your body really well, staying away from too much caffeine, alcohol, sugar, all of the stuff that makes our mouth drool and uh, limiting gluten, at least for a period of time. Mm-hmm. I love that. And that's many of the recommendations that we give our clients too. And as I always say, especially with the thyroid and metabolism in general, it's never one thing. Um, and it's not to say yeah. that you can do all the things, but if you can do the foundations better, it can really help in the long run. And one more question for you on the thyroid. Um, what are your thoughts on iodine or does it really kind of depend on the client? Yeah. Um, great question. And I will say I'm still, I'm literally actively learning about it. I'm in a doctorate program right now. And this very week we're learning about iodine. So my thoughts are continuously evolving. My thoughts in the past were we iodized salt. I believe it was the sixties or the fifties or something like that because people were getting goiters because we were not getting any iodine in any of our food supply. And at that point, they determined it was necessary. And then we realized like, oh, we're getting plenty of iodine. We don't need iodized salt. We don't need to infuse ourselves with this all the time. And it really varies based on the person. So what I am, what I have recommended in the past is for most people, unless you know you need iodine, don't have iodized salt. Don't supplement it. If you want it, have some seaweed, something like that. And now what I'm learning is for Hashimoto's, if we actually really slash iodine, like not even iodine containing foods, nothing like that for a period of a couple weeks or months, that can reverse the autoimmune response of Hashimoto's. So I've never with my my clients been that specific, like really monitor your iodine and take everything out. But now I'm starting to investigate that. I've always just kind of been like, don't supplement with it. Well. Actually, the reverse would be in some thyroid conditions. I'm talking Hashimoto's right now, but if if you had uh, Graves' disease or something like that on the reverse end of the spectrum, you might want it. So I think we just need to be very specific in our approach and not have a blanket recommendation for everyone. But I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Do you have different or the same thoughts? Yeah, no, similar for sure. And I think it really depends on the client because we've seen... Um, clients, like a lot of times we use kelp. I mean, sometimes we'll do like a full on iodine protocol if we've done some sort of testing beforehand, just to see, you know, where their iodine levels are in the body. There's a, there's a lovely urine test that you can do to see where your iodine levels are. It's lovely. You collect your urine for 24 hours. Um, so it kind of depends and we've definitely seen it help, but we've also seen on occasion where thyroid labs will temporarily, temporarily get worse. And maybe we'll see some of the numbers elevate. Um, as far as like TSH goes, but then they go back to normal. So I don't know. It it really depends on the client and then also working with like an endocrinologist or doctor just to make sure, you know, things are working as far as like meds and whatnot. But yeah, it just really depends on the client. We're not, we're not opposed to using iodine, but again, it's not, we don't have like a blanket recommendation for everybody because different levels of dysfunction going on in the body. (laughs) Um, I hear you. Yeah. 
And then um, along the same lines, another question we get really um, frequently from our clients that could be related to thyroid is um, intermittent fasting as a way to lose weight. And I know there's definitely some wrong ways to do it. And, you know, for certain women, it might not be the best. So do you want to talk about that a little bit, just as far as like what you think for intermittent fasting? Like, is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Could it be right for somebody, maybe wrong for somebody else? Yes, I think all of those are true. It's helpful and it's not helpful and it's right for someone and it's not right for other people. I think if we look at the research on intermittent fasting, it's very compelling in terms of longevity benefits, digestive benefits, metabolism, all of this stuff. It's like, wow, why wouldn't we do that? And then we look at who they've done the research on and it's almost all men healthy men to begin with, with no other medical conditions. And we can assume this part is a big assumption. So I realize I'm painting the way for what I'm about to say, but we can assume they were not that stressed. They chose to enroll in this study. They might have extra free time on their hands. They're fine. So these are healthy, non-stressed, middle-aged men. Now, I think for that particular population, great. I do recommend them to do intermittent fasting almost every day. Like, why not start with a 12 hour fast and then increase, increase, increase until you get to whatever, 16 hours, 18 hours. Great. However, that subset of the population is so small, a middle-aged, healthy, unstressed man. That's really small. When we add on any other layers, like women who are still cycling, that there comes a time in your cycle when fasting is not great for you. And Anyone who's training for an endurance race, that's not good for you. Anyone in some stages of blood sugar dysregulation, thyroid dysregulation, all these things where your body is feeling stressed already, your cortisol is through the roof. You're not living that balanced, grounded lifestyle. Fasting is another stressor. So I'm looking at myself back when I had those hormonal issues. Thank goodness intermittent fasting wasn't a thing back then or people weren't talking about it. But if I had read that and said, oh, great, now I'm exercising four hours a day and I'm like already eating a protein bar for lunch and my hormones are in the toilet. All I need to do is fix this is intermittent fast. That would have been a disaster for me. So it's those kind of people who are already dealing with imbalances and already in this physiologically stressed state that I don't recommend fasting for. And in fact, even if they're like, well, I'm not hungry for breakfast. I'm going to be like, let's try it for two weeks to get in some protein in the morning and see how you feel. And a hundred times out of a hundred, they come back and they're like, oh yeah, you're right. I actually felt better. So short answer of all of that is yes, I think it's a tool, but it's not a tool for everyone. And we have to be really strategic with how we use it. Mm-hmm. And I agree a hundred percent. And I'm not dogmatic when I think about intermittent fasting, because yeah, some people, they have great success. They feel great. But just like you were saying, the ladies that we convince them to start eating breakfast and, you know, start fueling their workouts and their life a little bit better. They're all, they always say it. They're like, I have more energy. I'm happier. I have more patience with my kids. You know what I mean? Like they just feel better across the board. So I very much agree with you there. And yeah, th- it's not necessarily intermittent fasting is not like not bad. It just depends, you know, who is doing it and like what is going on in their life on other levels, especially when it comes to stress. 
and another area kind of related to stress um, and also something that our clients struggle with are cravings. Um, I think a lot of times sugar cravings, um, but when I was stalking your Instagram feed, um, you had a post about um, science-based science strategies for more effectively managing food cravings. And I love science and data and research. So I was just wondering if you might want to share some of those um, just for yes. strategies as far as like real life things that women can do to better manage those cravings because they can really trip you up, especially if you're trying to control your weight or lose weight, like sugar cravings can really mess things up for you. They're brutal. Yep. Yes, I know. I know. I think of cravings in two major buckets and then I'll break them out further. One is physical and one is emotional. And so just to start with clients when they're saying, I'm having these cravings, I'll have them, I use post-it notes a lot. I just love post-it notes as a health tool. I'll have them write on a post-it note, one word to describe what they're feeling when they have the craving. So, ooh, I'm craving chocolate. I feel lonely. I feel stressed, guilty, anxious, bored, scared, tired, whatever, some kind of emotion. And oftentimes they'll come back to me and they'll be like, oh, every time it was overwhelmed. And so then I say, great, let's talk about it strategy for what you could do when you're overwhelmed. Do you like to do a to-do list? Do you want to have the goal to step outside for two minutes and get sunshine on your face before you eat the chocolate? Do you want to, personally, I love laying on the floor when I feel overwhelmed. I mean, that's silly, but it feels amazing to me. So I just get down on the floor, whatever. And then sometimes they'll come back to me and they'll, they'll be like, well, I wrote some words down, but Honestly, it didn't really feel like an emotion. It felt like a physical craving. And so then we dive into what could be driving that. One thing is what you said before, eating in the morning. Oftentimes, if you have cravings, you're hungry. Your body is lacking nourishment. And if we get past the point of hunger to the point where your brain is like, oh my gosh, Megan, give me some food right now. What's it going to crave? It's going to crave sugar because that stuff acts very quickly. That gets into your bloodstream immediately. That's part of the problem. But your brain and your body at that point are like desperate for fuel. So if we preempt those cravings by actually nourishing our body with good quality food throughout the day, oftentimes just that is enough to reduce the cravings. And then also, if it's physical, if we determine it's physical, of course, we're working on gut health and, and hormones and all of that kind of stuff. It depends on what the imbalance is. But I'll also just have them pair whatever they're craving with another nourishing food. So if they are, I always use chocolate because that's always going to be my craving. <laughs> if they're craving chocolate, okay, well, maybe their body really needs magnesium. Could could we have, no one ever maybe has had kale and chocolate. I probably would. But could we have some leafy greens with that chocolate? Could we have a few bites of carrots and hummus with that chocolate? Something like that. So that we're giving our body the message, like you no longer have to give me this strong sensation of a physical craving. You're nourished, you're fine. And you can still enjoy the chocolate if you want, but let's cool the jets a little bit. Mm, I love that. I love that. And it's funny, we do something similar with our son. Um, because, you know, he'll ask for like a cookie, like half an hour before dinner. And I don't want to be like, no, you can't have the cookie. But in my head, I'm like, you need some nutrients and protein in your life. Um, so yeah. give it with his dinner. So like last night he had a salmon burger and he had some rice and he had a pear and then he had a chocolate chip cookie, which he ate the chocolate chip cookie first. 
<laughs> but he yeah. their stuff too. And I'm just like, well, I think it kind of works. But I mean, that's very carrots and cake yeah. ways, you know, just having some sort of balance. Yeah. I love that. I love that starting from emotion and then really going to more the physical and like nourishing the body. So I think that is a lovely strategy. I really love that. Um, and yeah. then gears a little bit here. I have a couple personal questions for you or things that you sure. about just on Instagram that I thought were really interesting and might help our clients. Um, but you, oh, clients and audience listening here, um, but you talk yes. about eight minute morning that you do and this routine that, yes. you know, can just enhance your life. So I'd love to know more about this. It honestly is the number one health habit that has changed the way that I show up in the world. Just like everyone else, I used to wake up and roll over and check my email and check my texts and check the news. And like, no matter how you feel about anything, that's stressful for your brain. And I used to always say, which I I have now deemed NTFM syndrome, which is no time for me syndrome. I used to say, I never have time to read. I love reading and there's just no time to read. And I was like, Megan, that's dumb. You have 168 hours in a week. You can make time to read, but when am I going to do it? When am I going to carve out time for me? If I put it at like, you know, 1 p.m. or 5 p.m. or whatever, there are million other things that could get in the way. So I started having that time for me in the morning and I just love my morning routine. I do it. I've done it every single morning, probably for 10 years or so. Um, now it is actually longer than eight minutes, but the way I teach it and the way I started was eight minutes. So all people have to remember is wake up and go. You can remember that it's an acronym. W stands for water. You just drink a big glass of water. First thing, even before coffee or anything else, a is for affirmations. You just pump yourself up in some way. I don't like the form of like, I am a billionaire when I'm actually not a billionaire. That doesn't feel right to me, but I say something that's true about my life and represents the way I want to feel during the day. K is for knowledge. So you read something, you listen to a podcast, you do Sudoku, like whatever you want to do to stretch your brain. And all of these just have to be a minute. Again, I do them longer, but you could do them in a minute. E is for exercise. Even if people aren't going to do a longer workout in the day, one minute of jumping jacks, stretching, something like that, a plank. One minute plank is amazing. Any of this stuff gets our body going. Uh, U is for unwind. So just some deep breaths for a minute. You can meditate, pray, journal, whatever you want to do, or just breathing. P is positivity. I like to listen to a new song on, or not new, but a different song on Spotify. I have a positive playlist. And then G is for gratitude. It's a cliche habit these days, but cliche because it actually works. So think of three things you're grateful for. And then finally, O is one goal for the day. And for overachievers like me who have a jillion things on their to-do list, I would always look back at the end of the day and feel like, oh, I didn't do those 30 things. So I just started setting one major goal. And then at the end of the day, I can always feel accomplished. Even if I didn't get the other 30 done, I got those that one. So that's wake up and go. And if people just spend one minute on each, I have never had someone try it and come back and say they didn't like it. So I challenge everyone listening to give it a go. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm going to try it a hundred percent. I love all the different things that you identified, which are very foundational and yeah, just can start your day off on the right foot. And I love that you were talking about just like making time for yourself too, because same thing. I always 
yeah, there's like things I want to do, but that I don't have time for. So I like kind of starting your day with some of these things that, you know, will kind of benefit you and, you know, put you in a good mood and all that good stuff. So I love that. Yes. Try that. And thank you for sharing that. And then another personal question for you is that it seems like you are a big fan of meal prep and meal prepping. I saw your photos and your tips and everything. And I'm also a big meal prepper. I'm not like an expert by any means, but I'm a big fan. It definitely helps me stay on track and eat healthier. But for somebody who like knows they need to meal prep, maybe they've dabbled in meal prepping. Do you have any tips for just not feeling overwhelmed by it or just more or making it more doable? Because, you know, we see those photos on Instagram and Facebook of, you know, every meal plan for the week and Tupperware and like all that. And I think a lot of people think that's the way meal prep should be. It should be this thing where you have like your whole week planned out. But we also work with a lot of like working moms or, um, you know, moms with kids. And like, it just doesn't make sense for their family to make only their food for the week when they're feeding kids and a husband and have a million things going on. So my question, sorry, is, you know, just tips for like not overwhelm, not being overwhelmed by it. And then just more like, everyday, like can do mom tips, I guess. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So first part of this is I do meal plan and food prep every week and it works really well for me, but I actually don't think it's a necessary strategy for everyone. So some of my clients, they're like, oh yeah, I, I have cooked a healthy homemade meal every single night for the last a thousand days. And I'm like, great, keep doing it. That's It's probably healthier than actually bulk prepping anything. So if you're making it work, then that's great. But for many of us, we're like, oh, I could really benefit from some extra time. And from that feeling of stress of like, oh, I'm rushing home at 7 p.m. and I don't know what's for dinner. That's a miserable feeling. And the kids are screaming and all of this stuff. So we want to have some things ready to just make our life easier for us. So then in terms of your question of how to make it less overwhelming, I ask people to just start with one pan of roasted vegetables on Sunday or whatever day once a week. That's not going to be enough, obviously, to feed you for the whole entire week and all your meals. But that's going to show you, oh, it's really not that bad. And I actually do eat this stuff. And roasted broccoli, even if it's, you know, two days old, it's still pretty tasty. And so that just rips the Band-Aid off. And then the next layer would be make something like a, a chicken salad or a tuna salad or a chopped chickpea salad or something that's easy to, that has some protein and is easy to grab in moments where you don't know what you're going to eat. Uh, and then they, they see, okay, well, that was convenient too. Then maybe next layer would be go into, you. people decide what is more challenging for them, but usually it's either breakfast or lunches that tend to be an afterthought. So maybe they want to make a breakfast casserole, which is one of my favorites. And then they just have breakfast ready for them all week and it's high protein and has fiber in it and it's easy. Or maybe they want to make something else for lunches, but just go layer by layer like that. And then once people build up to maybe, maybe it's those three things. It's a pan of roasted vegetables, it's a chicken salad, and it's a breakfast casserole. I like to really set out my kitchen and I'm not fancy. Like you said, you're not an expert. I'm definitely not either. This is just what works for me. I like to put all the ingredients on the counter, like in the area. So all the ingredients of the breakfast casserole will be right here. And then the chicken salad over here. And I 
like to put post-it notes again, you could tell I'm a real post-it note consumer. I put number one here, number two here, number three here, and I just go in that order. And then I put my phone out of the room. I turn on some music and I'm like, okay, this is what I get to do for the next hour. I'm going to make it fun. I'm going to go in order. I'm not going to get distracted. You know, if you have kids coming in and they're screaming and all of this kind of stuff, distractions are inevitable, but don't distract yourself by saying, I'm just going to take a five minute break to scroll through Instagram or whatever, then it's going to drag on all day. So I could talk about this forever, but how do you think about those starting tips? No, I love that. And I like how you broke it down. And I like that you mentioned just making it fun. And I'm the same way. Like, I feel like I have to be in like a certain mood to like chop things, things and prepare and like all that. But I'm a big fan of like putting on some music. Like I'll make myself like I'm big into the adrenal cocktail. So I'll make an adrenal cocktail. Um, oftentimes I do get my son involved. Um, he's nine. So I always like put him to work and he's really into it, but yeah, like making it something that you actually look forward to instead of dreading it. And I always give this example with our clients, but you know, like telling somebody to meal prep on a Sunday where like Sundays are your day to like watch football or go on adventures with your family. There's going to be like a lot of resentment and bad feelings and you're just not going to love meal prep. So I think if you can find a time where like you might actually enjoy it, like if you have like a podcast to listen to, or maybe you have a TV in the kitchen where you can, you know, watch your favorite show, I think it can just make it so much more enjoyable. Um, And then one more question for you that I also think would be helpful for our listeners and clients is packing lunches. I feel like a lot of our clients get stuck on lunch. Like they just don't know what to eat. And I'm a big fan of leftovers for dinner, you know, just pack it up, reheat it, eat it for lunch. But a lot of people, either they don't have the leftovers, um, their family ate them all, um, or they just don't like leftovers. Like, do you have some kind of like tips or even go-to meals that you rely on again and again for lunch? Yes. So I love leftovers too. That's always a staple for me. The adult Lunchable is becoming super popular. There are a billion different names for it, but it's just some kind of protein. So maybe some chicken cubes or some uh, rolled turkey or something like that. I like to put in some kind of veggies with dip. So maybe it's uh, carrots and hummus or it's celery and guacamole or something like that. Some healthy fat, maybe some olives, maybe some uh, fruit in there. Just think about the components in terms of the nourishment that you need and then put all of those little portions together. Um, It can be hard, I will say, to get enough fuel doing this and to not overdo it. So some people will say, oh, I put the adult Lunchable together and then I realized it was, you know, like, 3000 calories or something like that. Or I put carrots and hummus and two chicken cubes in my lunch and then I was starving in an hour. So just really practice getting the right portions for you and know how much nourishment you need. But that's one option. I really am a fan of like the chicken salad, tuna salad, things like that. You don't have to make it depending on the person's needs with yogurt or mayonnaise or anything like that. And you can, if those work for you, I I do those both regularly, but there is also versions that are like, I made an herby chicken salad the other day, which was olive oil and herbs. There's all kinds of different things that having it like in a, in a chicken salad or a tuna salad type meal. And then you can put it in a wrap if that's your thing or in lettuce wraps or over greens or with some kind of um, rice on the side or, or squash or whatever you need. 
but that can be a really good staple. Um, personally, I love big salads and I don't m- mind if they're like wilted three days later, but I think most people don't love that. I would just say mix up lunch. Don't think of lunch like it's a sandwich or nothing unless you could eat a turkey sandwich the same way every day for the next 20 years. If that's you, that's great. But otherwise, try different things. There's no such real thing as a lunch food. Like try some dinner recipes, try some whatever, just experiment with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And I do think like trying just to like think outside the box. I mean, adult lunchable, I feel like you have endless options with that. Like you could really go and yes. you have some protein, maybe some fibers, um, something that makes it taste good. Yes. So many options or even like, you know, breakfast for lunch. Like it's like a Greek yogurt parfait or something. I just feel like there's lots of yes. that. But anyways, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Cause yeah, that's always a place where a lot sure. of ladies get stuck. They're like, I don't know what to eat or they skip lunch. So then they get home at the end of the day. Yeah work and they eat the whole kitchen. It's like cheese and crackers yes, and chips. And like, uh, and sometimes it's just like, let's make it a point to eat lunch. It can just like make such a difference. But anyways, I have loved this conversation. I think you said so many wonderful things that are really going to help the carrots and cake audience. And just as we wrap up here, um, do you want to tell people where they can find you, how they can connect with you, um, all of those good details? Absolutely. So you can find me at my website, which is www.thelionsshare.org. It's L-Y-O-N-S. I'm also on Instagram at the Lions Share, and I have a podcast, Wellness Your Way. And I want to say thank you back to you, Tina. I told you this before we started recording, but I have been one of your OG followers, and you have really paved the way for so many of us in this nutrition world. So thank you for all that you do. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I love, I love all the old school carrots and cake followers. You guys know where I've been, where I am now. Um, But anyways, yes, I appreciate this. And yeah, thanks again.